Hi, welcome to the Then Before Us podcast. This is Jen Friesen, and I am here with Katie Faust, founder and president of Then Before Us. Hi, Katie. Hi, everybody. Hi, Jen. I have a question for you that's not super related to our topic, but I was wondering if you had a favorite chapter from the book that you've written. You do not have to say this one, the chapter we're about to talk about. I That's a really good question. What is my favorite chapter? Um, I loved the last chapter where we talk about the movement because I had like, I don't know, like a hundred different quotes from our supporters across the globe and why they were fans of children's rights. And I agonized over which ones to include. And I just had to keep cutting, 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 cutting. Because I don't know how many we've got in there, 30 or 40, but it was just agony to have to figure out which ones to include and which ones to have to cut. Because I loved everybody's comments. So I love that one. The join um, the movement chapter. Join the movement where I just, yeah, I'm like, let me just tell you who we are. Let me just profile the diverse, amazing people across the globe. I mean, there's probably like four continents represented, five, I think we've got somebody in Africa, so that'd be five. Um, and I just, I'm so inspired by these ordinary people. So I love that. Um, chapter two is probably the chapter that I personally use the most, go back and reference the most. Um, I feel like that's, probably one of the most foundational um, in terms of understanding the importance of this movement and our work. Um, Which is biology matters. Biology matters. Yeah. So um, I don't know. That's, that's really hard. Thanks for stumping me. <laughs> right away. There you go. Hard questions and fact checking you from the book right away. Yep. Uh, yeah. We're talking about chapter seven donor conception today and you start the book off this way. So I'll set you up. To, to share this with people. Can you give everyone our heart behind those who struggle with infertility? I think it's come up in, in some of our other podcasts, but we'll just start there because we know similar to how we talked about divorce, so many people listening have been impacted by divorce. We know many, many people have been impacted by infertility or love someone who has. So can you share our heart for people who struggle with that before we dive into the chapter? It's interesting because um, in all of these different areas, I feel like I'm like, okay, my life personally intersects with this here. So like, I understand divorce from the child's perspective. Um, I understand adoption because I'm an adoptive mom and I kind of came out of the adoption world. I understand, you know, same sex parenting in terms of having a parent who's in a same sex relationship. Um, so I feel like my world kind of intersects personally um, with a lot of these topics, but not infertility. I have not struggled with infertility. I remember when I first, when Ryan and I first decided like, okay, I think that we're like ready to have kids now. My mom said, you're going to get pregnant so fast. And I was like, mom, that's not how it happens. 50% of couples take, you know, a year or more to get pregnant. And she goes, you are not one of those couples. She's like, Ryan is going to look at you cross-eyed and you're going to get pregnant. That's how it works in our family. <laughs> I was like pregnant while I was talking to her and I didn't even know yet. Oh, wow. So <laughs> yeah, like, right. yeah. It's just not something that I've had to struggle with at all. Um, but for the women that do, because I have been, the thing about being in ministry and being in church is you are no stranger to human struggles. You have up close and personal experiences with everybody that struggles in every possible way you could struggle. So of course, I've been surrounded by women who have struggled with primary infertility, secondary infertility, and it, it doesn't really matter. 
it doesn't really matter like how many kids you have or how you got them like that longing and that drive to have children can be overwhelming it can be a source of massive grief the women that i know that have struggled with it would admit that they are have that they obsess about it mm -hmm. it becomes the only thing that they think about um when they first thing they think about when they wake up last thing they think about when they go to sleep they would say like it kind of destroys your sex life because now it's not about connecting it's all about perfect timing you know exactly like we're going to make this happen it's 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 scheduled it's targeted it's not for the purpose of of intimacy and connection so it's a huge weight and a huge burden on especially women I mean obviously men long to have children too but there is something foundational to womanhood that connects with your longing and your ability to bear children and when there is something that's thwarting that it is a crushing load so we just want to say like if that's you and you've been there you've got our love compassion empathy support we're sorry for how you've suffered because you genuinely have suffered like mm -hmm. this is a major point of suffering um and we're sorry if you've experienced that yeah and there's even regardless of how people identify because we know this is the group that i'm a part of of being just single adults that are maybe aren't really considered part of the equation though we've joked about and talked about how california is including people who basically are not having heterosexual sex as being infertile as well, which is, you know, that's, we think that's kind of strange, but you know, there's single adults who want to be married. And then there's individuals who are in same sex relationships. And so we're acknowledging that there is the same desire for biological offspring and connection. We start the book with this great quote, um, we're just asking that people would shift their perspective and maybe just try to do this during this episode and then let us know what you think at the end. But here's a quote from the book. Biological connection is important and the drive to have genetic to have a genetic child is innate in human beings. Yet using a sperm and or egg donor ensures that the child will grow up missing a vital biological connection to his or her mother and father in order to serve the commissioning adult's desire for a biological connection. We 100% agree that it makes sense to desire your own children. We're just saying, when you flip that and consider it from the perspective of the child, you're gonna understand the argument we're trying to make. The same way that that biological connection is important to you, we're saying it's important to the child. And that's why we are condemning sperm and egg donation and procuring children in this way. And why we're gonna talk about IVF, which even within conservative and Christian communities is going to be offensive to people. And that's gonna be hard because many, many people have used those technologies. So that's our heart going into the chapter. Can you share a little bit, Katie, about your experience or perspective when donor conceived children, maybe now adults have tried to talk about their experiences or why do we not hear their experiences very much? Well, again, I can't speak about this from personal experience, but I have been following these people. Many of them have found us through our work. Now I'm friends with them um, and have been for a long time. So I do get, I'm honored to get sort of a front row seat to 
a lot of how they, um, the challenges, the struggles they've experienced, not just in terms of working through their own identity issues that are very um, prominent when you're created in these ways, but then also the kind of responses that they get when they try to share their stories. So many of them will say things like, <clears throat> I am so grieved. I really miss my father. I really, I, I long for a relationship with a man that I never knew. I'm grieving a relationship with the man who raised me, who I thought I was related to. This is so bewildering. This is, this is, there's like so much challenge in this. Um, I don't think that this is ethical. I don't think we should create children this way. You know, a lot of them will come to that conclusion. Like this isn't right. We should not do this. And very, very often what they hear in response is, would you rather be dead? Right. Oh, I see. You'd rather not exist. Oh, I see. You know, you would rather just never have been born. Um, and it's you're kind ungrateful. of like, you're ungrateful. Yeah, you're ungrateful. Boo hoo. Look at you. Oh, poor little girl with, you know, poor little boy with all these struggles or whatever it is. And so I just feel like it's, it's this massive amount of like emotional gaslighting. You know, you are not allowed to be honest about how these technologies have harmed you because if you do, what you're saying is you'd rather be dead. Hmm. And, and we don't do that for, um, we don't do that generally for children suffering in other ways. Um, I know what I say because I've heard other donor conceived adults say it is I think that, you know, I know personally people that were conceived through rape um, yeah. who say, I am so grateful for my life. Yeah. Also, I don't think rape is a legitimate way to create children. Right. So you can be grateful for your life and critical of the circumstances of your conception and a lot of times a moral framework does require that we do both. Yeah, it's good. We say, um, yeah, when children are brave enough to tell their stories, they're shamed, sometimes by the world at large, sometimes by their own parents. They're told they should be grateful to be alive, repeatedly reminded how very much they were wanted. We have some stories where the kids are reminded how much they were paid for, which that is a really interesting, when you think about trying to uh get your kid to behave and i think i think the stat or the story said fifty thousand dollars does that sound right you know i paid fifty thousand dollars for you yeah it really depends on how what kind of interventions you're using how often you have to do it like ivf itself will be twelve to twenty thousand dollars usually you have to go through multiple rounds before you have a successful pregnancy there's more rounds the older that you are um there are some interventions that are that, that don't and that, that are not that expensive anytime you're then including a donor in that like if you're purchasing eggs that's going to be a lot more expensive purchasing sperm less expensive renting a womb that's going to run you at least six figures and so there's a huge sliding scale depending on what kind of interventions what kind of services what kind of third parties you're employing but i remember alana newman said one time you know my my mother paid $75 or my father was paid $75 for his quote unquote donation. But what does that really mean? My father was paid $75 to stay out of my life forever. That's what they got. So it was a very small amount of money, but it literally like guaranteed that he would have nothing to do with her. Wow. So even if it's under a hundred bucks, that purchase is still still very much impacts how children think about themselves and about their parents here i'll read this uh story that someone shared with us this person said i am donor conceived i'm happy to be alive but i would never wish this on my worst enemy in a million years i wanted to have a father i never had a father 
I never told my mother because I wanted to make her happy for 18 years. In the end, it was not a successful process. She's still miserable. And I don't know if I'm dating my brother or even my own father. Why would someone do this to someone is a question I ask every day. We'll probably talk a little more about this in the adoption chapter, but um, there is a psychological burden on children who were created through third-party reproduction. Mm -hmm. They have the burden of losing a parent, but then they have the additional burden of knowing that the people that are raising them chose for their biological parent to be gone. And that's not how it works in adoption. In adoption, the people who are raising the child are seeking to mend the family wound. They didn't create the family wound. But when you're being raised by the people who created your family wound, it does have a silencing effect on you. If you go to your, you know, what this kid relayed is, I can't talk to my mom about this because I was so quote unquote loved and wanted. And so it's like that loved and wanted, you're loved and wanted. Oh, and by the way, we wanted you so much, we paid this much money. I mean, heterosexuals, they have couple, they have babies on accident. I had you on purpose. And here's the, here's the receipt to prove it. Like that sort of functions as a gag order on kids when it comes to voicing their loss and their hurt. So the loss and the hurt exists. They just often have to shoulder it alone. And that really increases sort of the psychological distress that they experience. Yeah. Let's shift to talk about IVF and maybe start by describing what third-party reproduction is because maybe people haven't heard that term before and then can you just give us an overview of why what the them before us perspective on IVF would be Mm -hmm, good well like I said there's a a variety of different ways you can mix and match and make babies in a petri dish these days it it, once we figured out how to remove sperm which is fairly easy and then remove egg which is more difficult and then combine them in glass, in vitro, right? That's what IVF is, in vitro fertilization, fertilizing uh, human children in glass. All bets were off. Now, like you can mix and match your sperm, somebody else's sperm, your egg, somebody else's egg, um, create multiple children, freeze some, use some fresh, grade them, discard them. Um, Like once you're taking that process outside of the marital embrace, Um, you really do have the ability to create, design, and discard children at will. So IVF itself does not necessarily mean you're using a third party, but it enables the use of a third party. And we say third party as in somebody other than the mother and the father of the child are involved in the creation of the child. So somebody else's sperm, somebody else's egg, somebody else's womb. It's employing a third party in that baby making process. So um, IVF, you know, what we do at Them Before Us is we address all of these topics from the perspective of children's rights. Children's right to life, children's right to their mother and father. Mm -hmm. So because we defend children's right to life, that actually means that we are against almost all uses of IVF because IVF overwhelmingly victimizes children when it comes to their right to life. We've got several stats in the book. You can find them on our um, web page under fast facts um, for the donor conception. I think it's there. Actually, it yep. might be in the chapter where we talk about this, but the best that we can figure out is that about 7% of babies 
created in the laboratory, IVF babies, only 7% are born alive. The majority of them are going to be discarded, spend their entire life in a freezer, donated to research. They won't survive the thaw. They won't survive the transfer. They're going to be selectively reduced. That is abortion, aborted between 12 and 20 weeks. This is not a child-friendly process. So I know that that's hard for people to swallow because we love and we know people who are struggling with infertility. We want them to have a child. IVF is pitched as the way to get the baby that you desperately long for. But for those of us who are genuinely concerned with children's rights, their right to life and their right to their mother and father, uh, IVF is a no-go in almost every circumstance. Yeah. Is there any ethical way to do IVF? The ethical way to do IVF is you don't destroy any child's right to life or any child's right to their mother and father. So there's no third parties. You don't ever put any kids in a freezer because usually when they go in the freezer, they don't come out. At least some of them don't come out. Um, you commit to implanting every single child that you create. So you only create the number that you're willing to immediately implant. You are willing to insert those babies and regardless of whether or not it looks like there's some kind of genetic issue or whether or not those embryos don't look very strong or don't make the grade. I mean, you're consenting to a higher likelihood that there might be some kind of physical disability with the child because you won't abort no matter what. Um, and so I have heard of people that have done that, maybe three couples who have said, who do have babies that were born alive, who went through that process ethically, didn't discard any children. Yeah. Um, I've heard other couples that have tried to do that, but did not come out with a live baby because then they could not afford to continue doing it in a way that was child-friendly. Um, so while there are specific people that will go into it with that child honoring mindset, even when they do, they fight their doctor and they fight their clinic all along the way because right. the clinic does not benefit from this kind of pro-child mentality when it comes to employing these technologies. Right. I mean, big fertility, as we call it in the book and it's called around the industry of, well, the children's rights industry is wants to make money. That's the point. They get money when they're holding frozen embryos. They get money when they're selling them to research. They get money every time they're implanting, you know, separate times they're implanting them. So it's, it's, it, it it's, advantageous to them to have them frozen for a period of time and implant them one at a time, two at a time. And you've, you've said it's so cost prohibitive to do it ethically, either almost no one can afford it or virtually no one chooses to go about it that route. Yeah. You do have to be pretty wealthy if you're going to take a child friendly approach to IVF. So it's really, yeah. And, you know, I'll take this opportunity to say, um, we are big fans of what's called NAPRO technology, natural procreative technologies, which seek to resolve the underlying fertility issue. Usually there's a reason why the body is not functioning as it should, especially if you're not much older, right? Mm -hmm. If you're in your twenties or your thirties and you're experiencing infertility, that's because there's probably something wrong and it needs to be diagnosed. Many doctors don't diagnose it. Many doctors just put you in the IVF pipeline and send you over to make lab created babies. Instead, try to figure out what is going on with your body, the endometriosis or um, you know, the low sperm count or whatever it is, and figure out if you can resolve and bring your body to a place of health so that it can work the way that it's designed to work. Um, and in, depending on what the underlying cause is, NAPRO technology has higher success rates than IVF. Yeah, okay, wow, cool. It's a great resource. 
we talk about in the book that there really isn't as much data for this chapter as there is a lot like divorce. We have decades and decades of data, but we quote two big studies. One study is called my daddy's name is donor. And thankfully we have that study living on our page now. So you can go search it at thenbeforeus.com. And that's kind of one of the biggest comprehensive studies on uh, it's adults between 18 and 45 years of age that were conceived via sperm donation. And it's one of the first or largest studies of its kind, I'm pretty sure. But much of the data that we're going to be talking about is coming from that study. And then there's another study, We Are, Don we are Donor Conceived. Oh, that's a like a website or an organization, right? Yeah, so that's a survey, right? An organization that's surveying attitudes of the people within their organization who were created through sperm or egg donation. So my daddy's name is Donor is one of the best studies okay. that we have. It was done by the Institute for American Values, which doesn't exist anymore, even though if you look at the people who signed on to that, I mean, it is incredibly solid in terms of experts in the field who contributed to um, putting together this important work, which is why when their website discontinued, we were like, give us the study. It has to live somewhere because there really has not been, there really is no other study that is as comprehensive and that's methodologies are as reliable as my daddy's name is donor. So you'll find that on our website. And then the other information that we have largely is self-reported results from kids created through these technologies. Right. Something really interesting in this, I thought this was a, a little bit of a credit to single mothers or to same-sex parents who've used some of these technologies. The We Are Donor Conceived group that's doing the survey found that 82% of kids raised by single mothers or gay or lesbian parents were made aware of their conception as children but only 11% of children with heterosexual parents. Now, granted, when a child does some basic biology in school and realizes like, wait a second, like I obviously couldn't come from two women, you're not gonna be able to get away with it in the sense of if you're trying to hide it. But it is pretty sobering that the couples that are able to hide it in a way, 90, what, 90, 89% of them are doing so. So that's pretty sobering. Well, and a lot of that is that when especially sperm donation began, it was kind of similar to the baby scoop kind of closed adoption era. Like biology doesn't matter. The kid doesn't need to know. Yeah. Like what matters is that they have a loving mom and dad who are going to raise them. In fact, it might be bad for them if they knew, right? They might be confused or they might feel illegitimate or they might, you know, forgive my language, but like feel like a bastard or something um, and that's actually, that was sort of the mentality that led to closed adoption. And then the adulterating of children's birth certificates in the 50s and 60s and 70s, we think that they will be ashamed to know this information. So let's cover it up and hide it. And you even had like state, you know, collaboration on that cover up in terms of birth certificates. So when sperm donation first started to take place, it was not that uncommon either to say, well, biology is really not that important. It's better for them not to know and just believe that they were raised this way. So yeah, you're right. There's There tends to have been a lot more openness with non-traditional families, singles and same-sex couples about these origins, because like you said, A, it's harder to hide it. Um, and B, some of those are newer families that are created in an era where it's a little less taboo to talk about sperm and egg donation and things like that. Um, but yeah, like you we do get um, a lot more surprised and shocked people who are just finding out that they were donor conceived when they are 30, who were raised by a mom and dad 
right. than the donor conceived kids who are raised by lesbians. Right. We'll shift to talk about identity because that's one of the biggest factors and why this is so bad for kids and their and their well-being and the outcomes. Um, the my my daddy's name is donor study found some really interesting some really interesting things. And again, these are young adults who are conceived through sperm donation. They were more likely to experience profound struggles with their origins and identities, more likely to have family relationships characterized by confusion, tension, and loss, more likely to have experienced divorce and multiple family transitions in their families of origin, more likely to struggle with serious negative outcomes such as delinquency, substance abuse, and depression. And remember, they're not studying, did they, were they adopted by same sex or opposite sex or, you know, procured by, they're not looking at that per se. So just to, um, just to clarify, yeah. this why, okay, so this study is really, really important for two reasons. Number one, it's huge, right? They've got a, a large enough population to be able to make kind of population-wide conclusions based on yeah. it. But this is also the only study that we have that compares outcomes between donor-conceived children and adopted children. Yeah, so and bio. And bio, that's right. those three groups, yep. But when you say worse outcomes, we're not necessarily just talking about worse outcomes between, and this is just sperm donor kids. So in 100% of these cases, the kids are being raised by one biological parent, their mother, and then sometimes another mother, sometimes another father, or sometimes no father, but they always have one biological parent that they're being raised by. And then they're comparing it with adoptees who are being raised by neither biological parent. Right. Um, who might be single, same-sex, heterosexual. And then they're comparing them to kids raised in their intact biological family. So you've got three comparison groups. And that's why it's so fascinating. And so when you say worse outcomes in terms of household instability, trust and attachment, um, you are talking about they fare worse than even the adoptees who right. are raised by neither biological parent. So it's that is really, really worth investigating because if you've been listening to this podcast, you understand the importance of biological connection. And yet, even though the donor conceived kids are being raised by one biological adult, they don't fare as well as the adoptees who are raised by neither biological adult. Yeah. Wow. That's really fascinating. And, and like you point out, if being wanted is the point is that's the best thing a kid could have is being loved and wanted then you should see you should see being procured via sperm donation as even higher in a sense than adoption because you have so much more control over it and it's part it's at least half of who sorry the person doing it is the biological parent the mom will be the biological parent so you would think that that would show better outcomes than adoption like you're showing but the stats just don't don't show that Listening to the Them Before Us podcast. Make sure you head over to thembeforeus.com to find us on social media, sign up for our newsletter, donate, and more. Thanks for joining the movement. There's uh, another story we share. This was a woman called Elizabeth in the book um, before she was able to track down her donor, her dad. I do not have a father or the sense of identity that goes with one. I do not have any knowledge of half of my roots, my father, my medical history. So every time a doctor asks me any family history of, 
I have to tell them I do not and cannot know. What are off the top of your head? I know it's kind of throwing something at you, but what do you know in terms of what a sperm bank or an egg bank is required to have, like information they're required to keep? And I know a long time ago, it was like, it could be completely anonymous. Some of that's starting to shift. Well, there are different requirements state by state and country by country. Um, largely, there's been no requirement. Um, it has just been, my guess is that was one way that you chose which egg bank or sperm bank you wanted to use is what kind of identifying information or family information that they chose to reveal. You now have countries that are prohibiting and some laws that are saying the child must have access to identifying information or at least accurate medical history. But we don't necessarily know if it is accurate. I mean, is anybody verifying this? There's stories that come out regularly. If you follow, you know, you and I both have Google alerts set to like surrogacy or sperm donation or whatever. Right. So we're regularly getting these stories of women who are stunned to find out that the guy that they thought had a PhD in psychology actually has a GED and a mental illness. Right. And so you can really say whatever you want on a lot of these forms. Due diligence is not actually a high priority for, you know, people that are marketing and trading in human um, gametes. Yeah. The bottom line, that is what they're after. What they're after is maximum profits. We're not talking about the due diligence that goes into um, vetting both prospective parents and background information for birth parents in adoption. So the goal, you know, in the institution of adoption is the well, the best interest of the child, which means as much information as possible about both parties. Um, the goal in big fertility is maximizing profits. So due diligence is not really a big part of this. Um, you can definitely opt for an open ID donor. And so that's part of the selection process. If you're going in to figure out okay, we're going to use a sperm donor. Of all of the different criteria that you can use to narrow down your search, um, you can narrow it down based on the race of the donor, the height of the donor, where they live, you know, what's their education level, how many vials are available. And then one of the other factors where you can sort of filter your results is are they a known donor or they, do they want to be anonymous? So that's just, it's really just another aspect of, of the purchasing um, process where you're trying to evaluate what kind of product do we want? Do we want open access or do we not care? And a lot of people prefer anonymous because they don't, a lot of adults prefer anonymous because they don't really want any possibility of an adult coming back and wanting to be involved in the child's life. Mm -hmm. So there we see another major contrast between adoption and donor conception. Um, open adoption is now the norm because social workers and children benefit from as many connections and knowledge of their birth family as possible. A, anonymous donation is often preferred because they're trying to restrict access and information with the right. first. So uh, in terms of what's required, it's, it's a wild west. There's very few requirements. There's a few places that are mandating some information be given to the child. Oftentimes that's not until they're 18, um, but largely it's just up to the clinic and there's you can kind of say anything that you want and it might be false. So um, that ID may not really be ID. Yeah, wow. Another story someone shared, I feel like I can't discuss my conception with anyone because nobody would understand. Hell, I don't understand. Some of these feelings I know are not rational yet I can't help feeling the way I do. 
I feel like I don't know who I am. I feel like I am not real. I feel like a science experiment. I feel like I'm a fraud. You talk about genetic be bewilderment in the book. And can you talk about that a little bit more? You shared about it a little bit. And then, yeah, it's, it's interesting that kids that are adopted don't feel it to the extent that kids from donor, donor conceived kids do. Adoptees have absolutely struggled with the genealogical bewilderment aspect, especially when parents have not been as open and direct um, about their origins, right? They have this sense like something isn't right. I just feel like I'm out of place here. Um, and so it's this sense, this bewilderment that they have when they look at themselves in the mirror, or they think about their own identity. Um, and so we did first observe genealogical bewilderment among adoptees, especially in that closed adoption era, when it was typically white babies being placed with white parents. So this is not a question of like racial confusion. It really is some level of genetic confusion. The challenge for donor conceived people is in addition to the genealogical bewilderment, they also have this confusion of my parents wanted this. So the adoptees' parents did not want them to be confused, but the donor-conceived kids are being raised by adults who intentionally went through the process of creating the circumstances so they would be bewildered. Factor on top of that, this reality that these kids were assembled in some way, you know, where you are determining the race, the height, the education level um, of the genetic material of your child. And so when they talk about, I feel like a science experiment, a lot of them would say, this feels like a eugenics process because it is a eugenics process, right? right? Like they are and some banks have requirements. You can't be this short. You can't, you know, there, there's, there's actual physical markers where they'll say, mm, no, we're going to cap it at this. And so that really is a eugenics sort of decision-making um, filter, you know? Right. And so when they say, I feel like a science experiment, I, I don't know what's going on, right? You don't just have the genealogical bewilderment that a lot of kids experience when they're raised without knowledge of their origins. You have the commodification on top of that. You have the eugenics process on top of that. And then you layer on top of that, the fact that the person raising them wanted it this way. Yeah. So it's, it's destabilizing. Yeah. And there might be some people who are listening and are like, whoa, 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 Katie, eugenics, that's a little much. So I looked up the definition of it. Um, this is from Britannica, the encyclopedia. It's the selection of desired heritable characteristics in order to improve future generations, typically in reference to humans. This is absolutely true of what's happening within the industry. And it's going to be hard for people to make an argument that this is not happening, especially the more our technology advances. If you could actually, and I don't know, maybe you know more about this, if this is actually happening, like the gene editing, where you can actually say, this is the eye color I want, the hair color I want, no disabilities, you know, every single kind of, I don't want them to have to wear glasses. I want them to be over six feet tall. In theory, or uh, some of that's probably already happening, but in theory, you could be crafting superhumans that look exactly like what you want them to look like. And that is a very scary thing for people who think about human rights and think about all the atrocities that have happened throughout history. Well, so that is one of the quote unquote benefits of creating a dozen, 20 embryos. You do get to decide male or female. You mm -hmm. do get to decide um, 
eye color, right? You do get to make some distinctions based on your preferences for the child. And then you edit by discarding the ones that you don't want. So that is a commodification process. In terms of gene editing, that is happening, but it's still largely um, banned and prohibited, still largely looked down on, but, but there definitely is some movement to sort of loosen some of how we think and use that, you know, most famously, there was a scientist in um, China, I think it was 2018, who edited the genes of two children that were born alive um, and edited them in a way that he hoped would make them um, more resistant to the um, HIV virus. Wow. But then I believe that it damaged other aspects of their genes, right? So you edit the gene and you think we're taking care of this one problem, but genes are like uh, you know the architecture for a building you edit one part of the building it's going to affect another part of the building so um the gene editing and which is called crispr is still not ethically embraced but in terms of just determining which characteristics you want in the batch of embryos that you created honey that's just that's just big business right yeah. there's nothing wrong with that that's just, you know, getting the most out of your money and is it's very, very common. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit to the advent of the DNA collecting technology? Um, a lot of people have been doing it just to find out their ethnic heritage, you know, for fun. And we've had some stories. I think it was a woman who was in her 20s that said a boyfriend gifted her 23 and me. And that was part of how she discovered she was donor conceived. But can you just share about that a little bit? Because that's changed that's completely changing the game in terms of being able to hide what's going on. A lot of people in the donor conceived community will say, it doesn't matter if you don't want to be an open ID donor, there is no more anonymous donation mm. with the advent of these at home DNA kits. Nobody's going to be anonymous ever, ever again. So that is part of it. Like now people will go into donation, not thinking that they're going to be able to be anonymous or escape being tracked down um, anymore. So that is a big part of it. When you look at the stories of kids who um, tried to do this, figure out who their biological parents were, even adoptees who were trying to figure it out in the 70s and the 80s, it took so much legwork, like, you know, understanding what county maybe you were relinquished and then finding if, if you had the names of your birth parents, like, how do you then track them down and going to, I mean, you had to sometimes go to physical buildings to figure out, like, how do I how do I recreate my family tree in a way that will help me discover who this missing link is? And now a 23andMe test will like either ding, that's your biological dad, or give you enough information about your first cousins or second cousins so that you can piece it together. Um, so yes, like the advent of these at-home DNA kits has been a blessing in some ways for kids trying to figure out who their parents are, but it also is often the way that people realize their father is not really their father. And all of those heterosexual couples who were told your kid doesn't need to know this now suddenly find out when they are 33 years old and didn't have a clue. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and that leads right into this missing half sibling issue. I think it was someone who testified with you in front of a UN panel that shared, you know, potentially hundreds up to a thousand, maybe half siblings. And even when you just think about a geographical area, like this is the particular sperm bank in my town that I came from. So if you look, you throw a rock in a hundred miles in any direction, you could hit 
this many half siblings. I'll read a little bit of a story and then I'd love to hear your thoughts. This is someone named Ellie in the book. I was also shocked to find out what a huge number of donor conceived half siblings I probably have living near me, at least 20, maybe over 50. It's painful to know that I likely won't ever even know most of their names, let alone get to meet them. They're unlikely to have been told they were donor conceived. I love them and miss them without even knowing them. I'm grateful I didn't accidentally marry one of them, and I worry my own children will accidentally enter into a romantic relationship with one of their many, hundreds maybe, of cousins. We are really messing with the gene pool in ways that um, are probably going to have serious ramifications for our species, depending on how much we do this, how long we do this. Um, But incest is a very big concern for children who are created through sperm and egg donation because many, especially sperm donation, because some men quote unquote donate a couple times a week for many, many years. And so it's not uncommon to hear kids that have dozens of half siblings, sometimes hundreds of half siblings. Um, And we, they don't know, I mean, especially a lot of these kids that didn't know they were donor conceived, you imagine then that most of these other kids also didn't know that they were donor conceived. And it's not just a problem for the kids who are donor conceived. You're going to be having that just, it's it's an exponential factor in terms of incest risk once those kids start having kids. Right. Um, so it's it's not, um, it's not something that we've thought enough through, I think. Um, and certainly our ethical conversations about that have lagged far, far behind the technology that enables men to father hundreds of children that they probably will never meet. Right. I found an article off of CBC, so Canadian television, where a man found out he had 600 half-siblings and that sent him on a quest to end sperm donor anonymity. And he did a documentary called the world's biggest family because that's the largest group sibling group i've found just in kind of some initial searching recently there was one i think people magazine posted it was south carolina 65 half siblings in a group chat and yeah if you think about well we've had stories where people have married their half siblings and found out 10 years later not in the book but i just mean in news that i've read about because there's another thing phenomenon you know I don't know how much it's been researched but this idea of like genetic attraction this idea of like being drawn to someone and not knowing why necessarily and people finding out they're related later and and especially it's interesting from an ethical or like Christian standpoint what the heck are you supposed to do if you've been married for 10 years and maybe you have children or whatever what are you supposed to do so this is creating an incredible potential health crisis, um, but definitely ethical questions for anyone who wants to live sort of this, yeah, a moral life. We generally think incest is a bad thing, I, probably because of the Christian Christian influence in the West. And these are things, yeah, are people, a, a guy, college student who's 21, like, I'm just making some extra money, thinking that he's going to have, you're going to have 600 children, by the way, who are going to want to know who you are. Yeah. And maybe not all of them want to know who you are, but even if 50% do, that's three people that want to know who you are, to be known by you. A lot of them are probably writing and rewriting the letter to figure out how can I make sure that this guy, that I don't scare him off, but I need medical information. And also does he love me and care about me? And I don't want to alienate him. And I mean, that was amazing to me when I was researching this chapter and reading, 
I mean, really hundreds of stories of kids, um, even if it's not the full story, just quotes, you know, on on threads about like advice, giving advice to each other about how to best craft their letter so they can hook your donor and not freak him out so much that he runs away, but also not drive him away. And I mean, like, they, it's just this weird thing. Like, I need this guy. I want this guy. Uh, how do I phrase this so that maybe someday we can have some kind of relationship, but a minimum right now, I just need to know if I, I'm, I'm at risk for breast cancer, you know, or whatever, you yeah, know, right. on the medical forms. Right. You can look on, uh, you know, any of the video searching sites and look up, I think 60 minutes had one. It's like interview with half siblings meeting for the first time. Those kinds of things. I remember seeing one, it was seven or nine half siblings. There was boys and girls. There was not a dad in the group when all the, when the moms were together, which doesn't, I'm not saying they were all lesbian or single, but it was like, it didn't seem like there was like, I'm here's my mom and my dad that I was adopted by or whatever. It was a bunch of women and then a bunch of kids. And it was these half siblings meeting for the very first time. It was so fascinating and heartbreaking because they all look pretty similar. And then you've got like the oldest one and the second youngest one look like replicas of each other you know they're both boys and they're blonde and but they're just different ages and and they're standing there talking to the camera kind of sheepishly saying yeah I wonder if he ever thinks about me or yeah I kind of want to know what he looks like or I want to know what he does for a job and I think the title of it was like kids of donor yeah yeah kids of donor 5114 right kids of that's all they know they yep. know his number that's it and it's amazing yeah. because you do see them like, oh, it's cool to meet my sibling for the other time. But there's a few kids that talk and you can see this anger underneath them. You can see this sort of seething, like, Arr! and they're obviously bewildered. They're obviously happy to connect with their siblings, right? It's so incredible for them to see people that look like them. Um, and you're right, there's not a dad in there. It's like couples, mom couples, single moms in there. And the moms are like, oh, I just, I had no idea that they were gonna care about this kind of thing. And then you had this clueless mom at the end who is going, oh gosh, that was incredible. And boy, I didn't know my kid needed this so much. I would recommend donor conception to everybody. Get a sperm donor. It's been great. And I'm like, you literally look at these kids. Look how confused they are. Look how hungry. Look how hungry they are for knowledge of their biological parent. Um, you are literally just so clueless. And I actually think that it was kind of like a promotion video and even in this promotion video like you cannot mask how troubled these children are yeah yeah it's really heartbreaking and it's so many things we haven't considered before it's all starting to really come up I think probably because so many more over time are at the age where they're able to share their own story now and that's why I'm thankful just for my own education that we have so many stories because it really does communicate it in a different way. There's another, can you, you mentioned this documentary, but can you say more about it? You mentioned the documentary exploitation in the book. So we're talking about commodification is another big reason that we are against all of this because it's turning human beings into things to be bought and sold. I want one. So I'm going to figure out how to get one. It doesn't matter if it's ethical or not, but that's a, that's a documentary you mentioned. So the 
a lot, the Center for Bioethics and Culture has done a lot of incredible work on reproductive technologies. They put out the documentary called Exploitation, and it is primarily about the risks to women who donate their eggs. So we at Them Before Us focus on the harms to children, but there's a lot of people being harmed in the reproductive technology world. Men are harmed when they donate their sperm because they're being separated from their children, but it does not have the same kind of medical impact on their body as women who quote unquote donate their eggs. And we always say quote donate because women are selling their eggs. They are selling their future children. And it is much more um, medically risky for women to quote unquote donate their eggs because eggs are hard to get at. And so it involves a lot of hormones um, really messing with her cycle. There is um, documented health risks. And I say documented because, you know, it's been documented in things like exploitation, but it has not been properly surveyed and studied. So when the fertility industry is telling women about the risks of egg donation or the risks of surrogacy, they can say there's no known risks because there's no good, there's no known studies. They have not studied this. So literally women are not allowed, cannot consent to the risks for this because nobody has properly studied the risks. So we appreciate the work of the people at the Center for Bioethics and Culture because they really do look at the harms to women and actually big fertility, which we use all the time, was coined as far as I know by them when they did their documentary on surrogacy and the profitability of surrogacy and especially the harms to women who serve as surrogates. So from a bioethics perspective, and especially from a perspective of how this impacts the bodies of women, we recommend their work. Yeah, great. We hear a lot, um, just people asking, what can I do to help? What should we do with all this information? Because this is all information heavy. And um, another reason we recommend the book, which I appreciate, every chapter has a DIY them before us section, like what should you do as someone who read this? And you can get a lot of this information from the website and our fact sheets, but the book, like Katie and I have shared in previous podcasts, just ends up being our resource. We're coming back to a lot and being reminded of things and seeing the statistics and the notes, but you have four bullet points um, that you say, here's the things that we could be doing to start changing some of this right now. And then I'll give you the last word, any final thoughts after I read these. So because donor conception always violates the rights of children, then before us believes all types of third-party reproduction should be prohibited. So here's these four bullet points of things we think should happen. We should establish a government database to house donor information so children have access to their biological family. We should require open ID donors so children can access their medical information and biological identity. We should require intended parents to undergo adoption-like screening processes to ensure safe placements. And we should require accurate birth certificates that list biological parents, not intended parents. I'll just say too, should we go, there's that horrific story where the guy, well, sorry, I guess that goes under surrogacy, so we'll get to that then, but uh, sorry, any final thoughts about um, any of this? Yeah, so third-party reproduction should be banned. There's a lot of things in our book that we think that you can permit that we think is damaging without banning it. Like you can permit people to cohabit, you can permit divorce in certain cases, but you should ban donor conception. And those four points that we listed at the end of the book 
are really for our policymaking friends who are staring down a terrible bill, <laughs> which is coming to your state. If it has not already passed in your state, it's coming to your state. And what we've helped several pro-family organizations try to fight against these bills, sometimes we lose. And so those four recommendations are things that we are saying, if it looks like you're on the losing end of a legislative battle, here's the things that we think you should try to tack on to that commercial surrogacy bill or that parental uh, overhaul in terms of like the definition of parenthood in your state to try to minimize the harm. And a lot of the times, if you did these things, they wouldn't want to pass the bill anyway. If you're saying you have to have a database of all donors, well, that's going to knock out the people that are like, no, I want this to be anonymous. If you're saying that all intended parents have to undergo adoption like screening and vetting, part of the reason they're using third-party reproduction is so they can avoid those kinds of things. So they're not going to want these requirements. But if you introduce these requirements in a way that says, this is going to be important for the rights and the safety of children, a lot of times, A, if you can actually get it in the bill, at least it will it will stump the, the harm. Um, but oftentimes it will stop the bill because they won't want to pass the bill if there's these child-friendly amendments to it. So in a, in a world that honors children's rights, nobody's using sperm donation, egg donation, of, or surrogacy. Mm -hmm. Single couple, singles aren't, couples aren't, heterosexuals are not, homosexuals are not, the infertile are not, the fertile are not, nobody is using this. Right. Um, but we also live in Realville where sometimes you're in a legislative battle and here are things that you can do to minimize the harm. Yeah, that's great. Great resource, great thoughts. All right, this has been a great conversation also. Thanks so much for your thoughts. And obviously thank you to you and Stacy for writing the book because yeah, I continue just to feel like I'm learning a lot. And when we pull up these news stories, like you said, our Google alerts, we're starting to read these things through this lens now. Yeah, well, where are you gonna mention the children in this practice? You know, How does your kid who's now 10 feel about it? So it really does give us a different perspective into the world. So thank you everyone for listening. We hope you liked this podcast. Uh, let us know what you think, rate, subscribe, send to a friend, and thanks for joining the movement. Whether you are religious or irreligious, whether you are single, married, gay, or straight, if you are defending the rights of children, you are one of us. Thanks for joining this global movement to put them, the children, before us, the adults. Thank you.